All right, guys, we are in the book of Acts, looking at chapters 15 and 16 this morning. And what we've been seeing is the apostles and the early church on this adventure with Jesus. Something that my parents' generation and many of your parents' generation have noticed, there's been a significant change in America in the past few decades. And that's that the American dream used to be that people would buy a house in the suburbs, get the white picket fence, and settle down and stay in one place for a long time. And it's becoming that young people want to live in a high-rise apartment, pay low rent, and travel the world. And sociologists have called this sort of desire for adventure wanderlust. And I don't know about you, but I've always had this desire to do new things, try new things, go new places inside of me. And I remember when I was in high school, I got to experience a lot of different things because I had youth leaders who had gifts, talents, and abilities that I didn't have. And so in particular, I had one youth leader who was a guide that took people through caves. So one time, he took a group of my friends and I to southern Indiana, and we went through this cave. Problem was... I'm pretty claustrophobic. And so I was excited, but also scared. And I remember getting deep into this cave. It was just pitch black. And we had these headlamps on. And we got to this spot where it was so narrow that you actually had to sort of turn your body this way and turn your head to the side to get through the slot. The other problem was it was too narrow to get through this one slot at the bottom, but it got wider at the top. So you actually had to sort of like put one leg on each side of this crevice and and go through this crack in the cave. And I remember at one point, it was so narrow that my head actually got stuck in this cave. So I'm deep, dark in this cave. My head is stuck. And thankfully, this guide who was with me was right behind me. And so his solution was pretty simple to get my head out. His hand was the hammer... And my head was the object that he was trying to get out. And so he literally just like takes his hand and just starts pounding on my head. And I'm like, a little help here. I'm stuck. (laughs) I couldn't move. Right. And gets my head out. And, you know, obviously I'm here. So I got out of the cave. And uh, but anyway, I've always had this desire to do things that I otherwise wouldn't be able to do on my own. And the only way that it was possible for me to do those things was to follow somebody who knew what they were doing. Why is it that we have this almost insatiable hunger to do things that we've never done, go to places that we've never been? And I think what this text is going to show us is that all of that points to the reality that we were made to follow Jesus. The ultimate person that we were made to follow is Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, what we find is that Jesus takes us on an adventure that we could never dream up for ourselves. And so what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 15 and chapter 16 are three realities that make following Jesus an adventure. We're going to see that part of following Jesus are that we'll run into sharp disagreements surprise partnerships, and gospel dreams. So let's just take those one at a time. First one, surprisingly, sharp disagreements. 
Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here's what we know, a little backstory. Paul and Barnabas had been on this missionary journey. They come back from that missionary journey, and they had been great friends and partners in ministry. On that journey, their friend Mark had deserted them. The reason that he had deserted them was likely because he thought Paul was certifiably crazy. You remember, Paul had this rare disease that caused him to have these stabbing headaches. In addition to that, they were running into severe persecution. In other words, this mission trip was way harder than Mark thought it was. And as a result, he ditched him. What we know about Barnabas is that Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He's actually, humanly speaking, the reason that Paul is a leader in the church. Paul used to be persecuting Christians. Barnabas came to the local church and said, no, this guy legitimately got saved and he should be one of us. And the church listened because Barnabas was such an encouraging person. So what we see here is we see two very different personalities interacting with the same situation. Paul is a zealous, go-getter, leader, plow ahead. And so he says, I don't want Mark coming with me. Because the last thing I have room for on one of my intense missionary journeys is a dude who's going to leave us high and dry again. And Barnabas is like, oh, come on, Paul. He has so many gifts and talents and abilities, and he's probably reminding him, remember, no one wanted you on these missionary journeys either, and I'm the one who kind of vouched for you. Come on, let's bring Mark. And they come to this point, the text says, of sharp disagreement. I'm imagining there was some yelling. I'm imagining there might have been some name calling. I don't know exactly what that looks like when two guys this godly get in a fight, but they're throwing down. And it's making everybody around them a little bit uncomfortable. And so what we want to do is we want to put one of them in, in one category and another in that category. But this text won't let us do it because all of the players in this conflict are godly men. In fact, two of them are inspired Bible writers. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament and Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. So we have godly men on opposing sides in conflict with each other. Here's why it's important for us to understand that that's what happened in the book of Acts. Because we can often idealize the book of Acts. Have you ever heard somebody say, we need to get back to the way the early church was doing things. And when they say that, what they mean is, 
The early church was sort of this idealized community. But I want you to add this reality in, and maybe you respond this way to them. Oh yeah, like we should fight, like in Acts 15. We should be in conflict with each other, right? Because here's the thing. We need to, as we go on mission with Jesus and follow him on this adventure, we need to understand that part of that adventure involves conflict. Anyone seeking to do anything that's significant in the name of Jesus, will run into conflict. And sometimes that will happen in unexpected places. Think of all the books you love, all the movies you love, all the stories that you love. All of them involve conflict. And as we're following Jesus as sinful people, we will run into conflict. In fact, before I moved to Minneapolis and was part of a church, in Iowa City, the two founding pastors of the church got in a deep conflict. One of the pastors was asked by the other one, who was the leader, if he would take on a different role in the church. He had been the teaching pastor. He was asked to take on more of a shepherding role in the church. And there was a sharp, obvious disagreement between the two of them. That became actually rather public. And what ended up happening as a result of that conflict is the pastor who was asked to take on a shepherding role actually chose to leave the church and to go to another state to pastor another church. So there was a sharp disagreement between two godly people over an issue that's not clear in Scripture. And as a result, the gospel message kept on going forward. And they still haven't resolved that conflict, even though it happened over four years ago. And that can be very troubling to us, but I want to, in a sense, sort of normalize it so that when that does happen, whether it's a leader in your life gets into conflict with someone, or you get into conflict with someone else, that you know the next steps to take. Here's what happens. They come to a sharp disagreement, they don't resolve the conflict completely. They actually just go their separate ways. And what the text says is, as a result of sort of their bullheadedness, it says that Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In other words, there are times in conflict to go and reconcile that relationship. There are times when we need to do everything that we can to make that relationship right. But there are other times where you come to a point of disagreement and you realize you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you can't resolve the problem. And here's what the Apostle Paul did. He moved on. He didn't let that slow him down. He moved on. Sometimes you get in conflicts. There are conflicts within the church that you can't move on, that you can't resolve, and you have to just move on from. And as a result of that, the gospel keeps on going forward. We can't be too troubled when we run into conflict. Okay, thankfully, not all relationships, as we're on this path of following Jesus, go bad. There's some good ones too. In fact, sometimes there's some surprise partnerships that spring up along the way. Let's continue following the story. Acts 16, 1 through 6. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. 
the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, so Paul has moved on on this missionary journey. And he goes to Derby, and then he goes to Lystra. And really, to his surprise, he runs into a young man that he is very impressed with at Lystra. His name's Timothy. Now, the text says that Timothy was already a disciple. And what we know about Timothy from the whole of Scripture is that his grandmother and his mother were both believing people and had led him to the faith in Jesus. Now, he is vibrantly following Jesus. Paul meets him and says, man, I really think that this young man could help me in my ministry. Now, think about the timing of this. Paul has just been in this significant conflict with his former partner in ministry, Barnabas. He goes on the missionary journey, and the second place that he visits, God provides for him a new partner in ministry. There's no way that Paul could have known that the man that was standing in front of him, this young man, Timothy, would actually end up being his most significant partner in ministry. Let me give you a couple examples of the significance of Timothy to Paul as he continued on missionary journeys throughout his lifetime. So Philippians 2, 22 through 24, he's writing to the Philippian church, Paul is, and he writes to them about Timothy, and this is what he says. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go on with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Now, isn't that interesting? He talks about how Timothy has proved to be a son to him. He's been a constant source of encouragement and blessing. They've been on the same mission together. And Paul says, so much so that I can't wait to send him to you, but not right now, because I actually need him right now. He's such an encouragement to me, which shows us something very significant about the nature of ministry. No one can do it alone. There are no lone ranger followers of Jesus. There are no lone ranger Christians. Even the apostle Paul says, I need this son in the faith to me to be by my side in this moment of need. Paul's likely in prison during this time to just encourage me, maybe bring me food, care for me, speak the gospel to me, remind me of the truth that I'm so boldly preaching. So that's personal, right? We learned something about Timothy. This is even more personal. Paul actually writes this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, the last letter that Paul wrote, he is likely dying at this point. He says, do your best to come to me quickly, 
For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Timothy remained a significant source of encouragement for Paul from the time he met him in Lystra to the time he wrote 2 Timothy to him. And he's saying, come to me quickly. Why is he saying, come to me quickly? Because Paul's been deserted again. And he's lonely. And he needs this friendship. We learn in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that God created Adam. But then he said to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Which is interesting because Adam at that point had a perfect relationship with God. And yet there is a sense in which not because of some sin or deficiency in us, but because of how God has made us, that we all need friends. I was reminded of this. We were in San Francisco this last week as a staff team at this conference. And one of the breakout sessions I was at, they were interviewing this couple about 30 years older than me. And they were asking them questions about how they've survived in ministry as a couple so long. And at one point, I had the chance to ask a question. And I said, what are the rhythms in your life that have kept you going as a couple? What are some practical things that we can take away? And I loved Kelly Kang, the wife of the lead pastor, chimed in. And, and she said, this is going to sound funny, but one of the things that's kept me in going in ministry all these years is I always surround myself with funny friends. <laughs> She's like, I... The, the burden of ministry can be heavy at times. You're dealing with significant spiritual problems that people are having. And she's like, I just need those friends that I can just call. We just meet up and we just laugh together. And I just thought, you know what? We all just need that earthy wisdom. Sometimes we over-spiritualize this whole Christian thing, Christianity thing. Sometimes we just need friends that we can laugh with. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement for the kind of friend that you're looking for. I think the kind of friend that Paul had found in Timothy. You're looking for friends who have the same life mission that you do. Somebody that you're on mission. Notice Paul doesn't wait to get friends before he goes on mission. He goes on mission and then he sees next to him somebody else who's on the same mission. So you need to be on mission and you need to see who's running beside me whose life mission is pointing in the same direction as my life mission. I think the second thing is you just have affinity for that person. There's mutual enjoyment. There are people, don't tell anyone I said this, there's people in this church that you're really going to like, and there's people in this church that you're just not going to like for whatever reason. Now we're called to love one another, but everyone in the church is not going to be your best friend. That even includes me. I'm not going to be everybody's best friend. I'm not trying to be everybody's best friend, and you shouldn't either. And you shouldn't be looking for everyone to be your best friend. But there are occasionally in your life going to be those very best friends. And usually they walk with you just for a season of life. And your mission aligns because those friends are gifts from God. Those friendships don't happen by our own effort. 
They happen based on God's timing. So the question is, okay, what's the application for us of all of this truth? I think it's to anticipate that God is going to bring friends into your life who are a blessing to you in his specific timing. And so there's an element of prayer. There's an element of waiting. But as we trust God to provide friends for us, the interesting thing is we actually become better friends. Nobody wants to be friends with the person who is desperate for friends. But people love to be friends with someone where the relationship is give and take. And we can only be the type of friends who can give ourselves to other people if our best friend is Jesus. We're trusting in him. We're knowing him. We're walking with him. Okay. I've kind of glossed over this, but there's a context to this whole passage. And that's that Paul is on a missionary journey, which means there's a more basic question we need to answer. Are you on mission with Jesus? Are you on this adventure? Are you following him? Do you know him? Because the third thing that's true of followers of Jesus is that their hearts are filled with gospel dreams. Check this passage out. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, you might be thinking, wow, he's really good at reading all the names of those places. How do you learn to pronounce them correctly? And the answer is, I didn't pronounce them correctly. The key to reading scripture when you don't know how to pronounce things is you just fly through it And you just say it confidently. And then everybody thinks that you know what you're talking about, even if you don't. So that's just a free tip. All right. But so here's what's happening. Paul's in the midst of this missionary journey. And he's traveling around preaching the gospel. It seems like he has a pretty clear mission. But in the middle of this missionary journey, he goes to sleep and he has a dream where Jesus gives him more clarity on exactly what he wants him to do, which means this could be true. It's possible to be on mission with Jesus, to be following him, and at times to get stuck and to not know what the next step is. We are constantly needing to hear from Jesus about what he has for us next. And Paul, in this particular situation, has kind of this miraculous encounter with Jesus. What's amazing about it is he's not seeking it. In other words, There's no prayer, there's no fasting, there's no asking Jesus what he wants him to do next. Here's how you hear from Jesus, apparently sometimes. You go to sleep. Everybody can do that, right? You can go to sleep. And so Paul goes to sleep, and in his dream, Jesus is very clear with him what he wants him to do next. I don't know about you, 
but sometimes I just need things to be straightforward and simple. And so here's what happens in Paul's dream. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay? You don't need an interpreter for that. He woke up. He's like, I think we should go to Macedonia and help them. Right? It's very simple. Some of us, we just get too caught up in the clouds, in the big picture. There's starving people around the world. There's people who need to hear the gospel in the Twin Cities. Should I go do missions overseas? What should I do with my life? And we get so caught up in it. And sometimes we just need it to be really simple. Go to Macedonia, help them. What's that sentence for you? What's something that's been clear to you in the past in your walk with Jesus that has become fuzzy to you as time has passed? What is the mission of your life? It's not always going to come to you in a dream or in a vision, but occasionally God in his grace will confirm your calling, whether it's through a friend or Um, through somebody praying for you or through a certain scripture that you read or whatever it is, and sometimes even a miraculous way. I was remembering as I studied this passage before we moved to the Twin Cities, right after God called me to plant Salt City Church, I remember I had only talked to the elders of our church in Iowa City. And after talking to our elders, I went to meet with one of my friends in a men's group that I was in. And normally there were four of us in this men's group. We met at six o'clock in the morning. And I showed up and it was just my friend, Brandon, sitting at the coffee shop. And we just made small talk for maybe half an hour or so. And no one else was showing up and it was becoming evident that no one else was gonna show up. So the conversation started going deeper. And after a half an hour or so, he goes, man, I had the weirdest dream last night. Oh, I'm like, oh, cool, tell me about it. And he's like, There was this guy, and he was saying to me, invest in Kevin Garnett, invest in Kevin Garnett, invest in Kevin Garnett, and I have no idea what it means. I'm like, for those of you who don't know, you know, Kevin Garnett, famous basketball player from the Twin Cities, I mean, that was where he started his career, and I'm sitting there going, dude, God, like, called me to plant a church in the Twin Cities, like, three days ago. And I haven't told anybody other than our elders. And both of our jaws just dropped. And for me, that was just a significant encouragement to keep on going and to see that God's hand was in the planting of this church. It wasn't my idea. Here's my encouragement to you. Spend some time listening to Jesus. Just asking him, would you clarify my life mission? Because it's so easy for us as followers of Christ, particularly when we live in one place for a long period of time, to become stagnant and to forget our first love and the calling that Jesus has on our life. I actually want to spend some time just encouraging you sort of in each stage of life in our church. I want to talk to the empty nesters first, okay guys? Sometimes... You can come to this church, and I think the feeling as an empty nester, an older person, person with high school kids is, do I belong in this church? Is this church for me? I've actually had many people ask me that question directly. And here's what I'm saying to you. We need you here. 
as young people in this church, as I meet with young people, I think one of the things that we're longing for most in our life is wisdom from the older generation. You guys, maybe the thing that you have most to offer us is actually the sins and mistakes that you've made in the past. Maybe it's the griefs that you've had. Maybe it's the very thing that you think disqualifies you for ministry is your ministry in this church. And if you would just ask Jesus to use you and you would step out in faith and maybe push past some insecurities, us as the younger generation in this church would embrace your wisdom and encouragement to us. Okay, next, let me talk to the young professionals in our church, okay? Talk to many of you, and I think the, the common consensus is you feel like it's easy to get stuck in a rut. In other words, you get up, you go to the gym, you go to work, you come home, you watch a couple shows on Netflix, you go to bed, you do it all over again. And you feel like, I've tried to share the gospel with a couple people at work, and it's not working. They won't come to church with me, and... I've made an effort and it seems like the conversation is sort of shut down and it's not moving forward. And you're asking, what do I do next? And what I want to encourage you with is that the steps of faith that you take on a daily basis will be rewarded eternally. Your often boring, mundane, slow and steady, faithful walk with Jesus, being part of the local church, being sexually pure is radical. People don't do that. And it matters. And as you live that out, it might be 20 years, might be 30 years, somebody is going to see you in the office and they're going to notice a difference. And someone, think about this, an eternal soul, a person, is going to spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus instead of an eternity of hell, in hell without him, because you chose to just keep on going. That is a dream. That is a vision worth living your life for. Okay, lastly, let me talk to college students. College students. You are, in a very unique way, surrounded by the world. People around you can see it. You can smell it. You can almost taste it. People are running after sexual immorality. They're running after drunkenness. They're running after money. They're running after worldly success. And you're here on Sunday morning and you're at Salt Company on Thursday night. And sometimes in the back of your mind, you're wondering, is this worth it? Let me encourage you with this. I have never met someone in all my years of college ministry been doing it to some degree since I was 18. So 16 years of college ministry. I have never met somebody who regretted following Jesus. I wish I would have gone to less Bible studies. I wish I would have gone to less weekly meetings. I wish I read a, would have read my Bible less. But I have met many people over the years who have looked at me with tears in their eyes and say, I wasted it. I'll never get those years back. Some of those people are in this church and they would tell you, they would plead with you, don't waste this period of your life. It's not worth it. 
Sinful life ends in destruction. Following Jesus ends in life. And it's worth your while to follow Jesus all the days of your life. Okay, let me remind all of you of this to end. We are not saved by following Jesus. We are saved to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. We're not saved by following Jesus. We are saved to following, to follow Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus, by his perfect work on the cross, makes us right with God. And as we are right with God, what happens is we follow Jesus on this adventure. Following Jesus is a privilege and a joy, not a duty and a burden. Would you come follow Jesus with me? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have not only saved us, but you have called us to a holy life, a life of adventure, a life of following after you, a life of knowing you, a life of seeing other people come to know you, Jesus. Sometimes a life of conflict, but a life of deep and meaningful relationships and a life of joy. Would you help us? Would you provide people for us to walk beside us so that we follow you in fruitful lives all the days of our life? In Jesus' name, amen.